It's a little like listening to someone for years on the radio and then suddenly seeing the face that belongs to that voice. When you know a poet on the page and then actually hear the poet read, it can be a shock or a revelation or both. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked. I shall forget you presently, my dear. So make the most of this your little day, your little month. On the whole, it's good to hear poets read their work. Anne Lauterbach is a poet and essayist who teaches at Bard and has done quite a bit of thinking about the inner voices as well as the actual voices of poets. Poets understand what the musical element is in their writing. And when they read, you hear that understanding. Somehow the world knew from the start that this would be of interest. There are so many recorded poets, their captured voices coinciding with the earliest experimental days of recording, including this Edison cylinder of questionable authenticity purporting to be Walt Whitman himself. All, all alike indeed. The advent of sound recording 100 years ago changed poetry as much as the advent of photography changed painting. Charles Bernstein writes poetry, teaches poetry at University of Pennsylvania, and has written about poetry, including a paper on close listening, poetry and the performed word. One of the earliest, most interesting ones is Yeats doing Lake Isle of Innisfree. For one thing, Yeats was a radio broadcast, and he's in this huge, booming, prophetic voice, which is intoning the vowels, extending the vowels. I will arise and go now. I will arise and go now and go to Innisfree and a small cabin build there of clay and wattles made. You got this sense of this poet who was really too big for the radio in the McLuhan sense that he's a... The medium is, is is too cool for him. And I shall have some peace there, for peace comes dropping slow, dropping from the veils of the morning. It becomes fascinating to hear those earlier voices, just like it's fascinating to hear earlier singing. There's something different about it. But what about the aforementioned shock, when what you've seen on the page and what you have in your head is just totally unrelated to the voice that comes out of the poet? In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. And indeed, there will be time to wonder, do I dare and do I dare? You know, with, <laughs> with Eliot, for example, that kind of high Anglo... Um, there will be time, there will be time. You know, there's something about his voice that, that has a kind of meanness in it and a kind of, kind of pretension. April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. So those great poems that we learned in school suddenly are diminished by the timbre of the voice. April is the cruelest month. I mean, it so typifies so much about his work, that detached, impersonal, distant voice. In the mountains, there you feel free. I read much of the night, 
and go south in the winter. And he articulates the, the music of the poem in such a seamless, dreamlike way. What branches grow out of this stony rubbish? Originally, when it came out in the 20s, the wasteland seemed very abrupt to people. But when you hear him read it, it has this rich, seamless, uh, almost Eric Satie-like flow. And the dry stone, no sound of water. Only there is shadow under So a poem, spoken in a poet's own voice, can become a different poem. If I told him, would he like it? Would he like it if I told him? Would he like it? Would Napoleon? Would Napoleon? Would? Would he like it? If Napoleon, if I told him... Gertrude Stein's uh, reading is uh, so bell-like, it's so clear. The rhythmic contours are, are so remarkable when she says shutters, shut, and shutters open. Shutters shut and shutters and so and so shutters and so shutters shut and so shutters shut. You almost feel the shutters of the doors opening and closing. And also and so and so and also. The voice is very light. It's a different voice than you might associate with uh, someone who is, as, as you know, large large as she is and so on, and is seemingly intellectually imposing. It's more piccolo-like in a way than it is like a trombone, say. Exactly, and resemblance. For this is so because... I wonder about a poet like Stein, or any poet really, whose speaking voice itself may work so directly against a physical image, or style, or aesthetic that's established on the page. What voice does a poet hear while writing? Does it change what's written? I think the more that you perform, the more what you write fits into some sense of a script for that performance, no matter how much you may want that to be the case or not. It can't help but affect what you're doing. So a poet's own voice can be part of a poet's own process. When I see birches bent to left and right across the lines of straighter, darker trees... I like to think if you think that a poem is not a puzzle to be solved, but an experience to be had, then, then the voice, of course, becomes a kind of mediating space between that. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood in human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. Who was it that said, after 50, you get the face you deserve? Maybe it's true of a poet's voice. I've stayed in the front yard all my life. I want to peek at the back, where it's rough and unfamiliar. Everything is to some degree, you know, uh, given to you as luck and as, uh, as genetics for, for everyone. But what you do with it, how you make that timbre into something within a performance, is part of what your work as an artist is. One could do worse than be a swinger of birches. For WNYC, I'm Sarah Fishko.